are, staring at the dawn. It should feel like a beginning, but nothing feels like it's being started. What have I learned? What am I doing? What can I call myself? Hi, my name is... Forget it. I don't want an introduction. Let's keep moving. Welcome to the Marmoset Chronicles, a personal retrospective. I'm Kirsten. I'm Jay. How you doing? I'm pretty all right. I, I, I feel like that's kind of a heavy quote to start on, but... It is. <laughs> this could be kind of a heavy movie. Yeah. Do we want to get any, like, like, just, you know, basic spiel out at the beginning, or do we want to just jump right in? Basic spiel. Um, I guess if I were to, I have been thinking since we talked about it a couple episodes about uh, what you said, and, you know, I'm sure you have more thoughts on this, about Georgie sort of becoming the most he is ever a self-insert character in this movie. And I'm kind of curious to analyze that a little more and talk about that more, because I, I think that's really interesting. Yes. Um, especially because of what little we know about the sort of phase Laz was going through in his own life during this one. I This is one that I did not like as a kid, and I like more now. It's still probably in my bottom four, but I, I like it a lot more than I used to. Well, uh, okay. So, I feel like before we jump right in, we need to kind of put this out there. Laz Patillo hates the 80s. Laz Patillo didn't like the 80s when he was living in them. Laz Patillo didn't like the 80s when he was thinking about them in 79. Looking back on them, Laz Patillo hates the 80s. To be fair to this year, 1980 wasn't really the 80s yet. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, is when you say that, this was the entry to the 80s. He was probably working on this before it was the 80s. And, but, you know, but, okay, these movies don't fit very comfortably into the 80s movie sh sphere. They fit very no. comfortably into the 70s movie spheres, but these, they do, like, really kind of have, they're all elbows and knees amongst the other 80s movies. Very much so. I, I uh reviews of this one and the final couple after it often describe them as nostalgic increasingly, mm. which really just refers to the fact that they are still very much of the period in which Laz Patillo started making them, which I think is great from a cinematic consistency standpoint. But like, I think it's mean to call them nostalgic, like that's reductive a little bit. Yeah. But also I get it. I, I get why that was what you heard a lot. But okay. Laz hates the 80s because the 80s are big and loud and self-centered and yes. um, really focused on, you know, the image and the wealth and all lots of things that Laz Patillo does not necessarily like. Mm -hmm. And all of this is very fair. But again, 1980 isn't really the 80s yet. Um, I've heard some people argue that, like, the 80s as an era doesn't really start until MTV shows up. I don't know if that's true, uh, but... This is a weird transitional year. Have you ever looked at the at the Billboard Top 100 charts for 1980? Uh, you know, I have not. Don't. It's a weird aborted experiment. <laughs> Roger that. Just don't even bother looking at it. Um, okay. But this is kind of a weird transitional movie where we get some really amazing, iconic scenes. This is where the Russian scene is. Mm-hmm. This is where the Russian scene is. This is where a lot of his, uh, I mean, we, we saw this in the, f the previous movie too, but a lot of his uh, fascination with intricate subterranean imagery and like cave systems yes. becomes a thing he starts really liking, which I think is fascinating. Yes, because after this, seven and eight, I think, can reasonably be called high concept. 
And I think before this movie, none of them are really high concept. Well, number four is high concept, but not in a way that anybody cares about. The, yeah, I, I, hmm. I, I would argue they're all a little high concept, but in more digestible ways. I, I think at the beginning he cares more, and this goes back to the ever-continuing conversation about his relationship with the audience, he starts out caring more about making that concept a little more coherent to the audience. And that just kind of, that is degraded by now, pretty much. This might be a good way to say it. Until movie seven, they're definitely not art house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't really, and this one isn't really either. That's why it's this weird transitional movie in this weird transitional year, because Laz already knows he's going to hate the 80s. I don't know how he knows he's going to hate the 80s, but he does. And he reacts to this, like, turn of the decade by, like, creating this weird, tonally strange movie where we we really, like, rocket between the moments in this movie that are genius and the mo- mo- moments in this movie where you're like, what are you doing, Laz? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I, I think when I was a kid, I also think... Um, so something this movie makes me think a lot about, like, like what I said earlier, I did not like this one when I was a kid, but I found more like about it now. There is something really interesting to think about with these movies in terms of, you know, none of us, neither of us were in this camp, uh, but people who grew up with them. Like, yeah. who, who was a kid? I mean, you know, they're, they're all kind of violent movies, so, yeah, but, but also they're from an era where a lot of people were kind of lax about what they took their kids to, I feel like sometimes, like... You know, I, I still hear people saying, oh, yeah, I went and saw the original Alien when I was way too young. Yeah. And my parents were fine as long as it didn't have sex in it, you know? And that's that's still true with a lot of parents now. But, you know, imagine going and seeing that first one or the third one, which are, like, very adult movies but have stuff in... Or the second one. I, I feel like if I was, like, you know, a little kid seeing the weird stuff in that city for the first time, I would have been entranced by it. Yeah. But, um... That versus those last couple, like seeing one of those last couple or this one in the theater, it's like this is so explicitly and unabashedly and unapologetically out of the mind of an adult who has shit to say about the passage of time and the ways in which that is starting to sink its claws into Georgie. Yeah. Uh, you know, here in movie goddamn six, um, and, and which I'm sure it has of him too. And like that, that's what comes back to the 80s stuff is like, I think that the reason or our reason that Laz Patillo hated the 80s and knew he would hate the 80s doesn't, I, I think a lot of reasons do have to do with the culture of it. Absolutely. I also think there's a reason that has nothing to do with the culture or less to do with the culture, which is just that I think there was a point there where he started being aware of his own age. And mm-hmm. okay, we know that for one reason, because in between making this one and the last one is when his own mother dies. Yeah. Um, she passes away. There's the, you know, the, the po- shitty paparazzi photos of him leaving her funeral and stuff. And it, it's, it's, there very clearly was a personal turn in his life. And what's what's interesting about this movie and the context around it is I feel like he had more very vibrant emotional outbursts with those parts of his life with grappling with loss and grief earlier on before that loss happened. Yeah. Now he's a little older. He's a little more reserved. He's gotten to have a little more of a handle of what relationship his creative work has to his own expression of his emotions. And I think he a little more straightforwardly says like, 
I, it's the start of another fucking decade. Like I just lost this last anchor to the, my own childhood. And now I have to enter a whole new decade of existence. I still have three of these movies I want to make. Yeah. I, I think the weight of that not holds him down, but like the, the, feel it. The, you feel the, it on the, this movie. The look of a foundation of a house changes after it's had a shit ton of stuff in it for decades and yeah. decades. That's a that's a you very know, good way to put it. And I, I guess I have focused on this movie so much through like, you know, the lens of the culture of the eighties because I'm I guess I've just like read a lot of stuff and like consumed a lot of media that has all of these different levels of eighties nostalgia. Oh, definitely. I mean we we are currently and for the last like maybe a decade, like, living in a time that is very 80s nostalgic, Well, but sure. there are people who are, like, nostalgic for the 80s, and then there are people who are, like, nostalgic for the 80s, but in, like, a kind of sarcastic way. Because, mm. like, the 80s kind of sucked. Like... Oh, absolutely. And, like, looking back at it, like, I I look at a lot of the... a lot of the stuff I see from the 80s, and it, it is kind of, like, migraine-inducing. Like, all of... Like, you know, we, we talk about how people are image-obsessed now, that was even worse in the 80s and like carrying this like illusion of wealth and this you know now it's become much much more about like you know little tiny like luxury items but then it was like you know it was the cars and it was the running on the beaches it was the it was the mm-hmm. yeah and i like kind of the neon aspect of 80s nostalgia but other than that i kind of Give give me other decades. I think they're prettier. <laughs> um, sure, that that that's very apt. Yeah, I, I hear you. And there's plenty of amazing, fantastic media and fiction from the eighties oh, that should I'm, be and, celebrated. But I I agree with you though. I think. Um. Well, it's like so. This is gonna um not really. It's gonna say. Uh, I'm gonna say a lot about me. I guess because so, so my favorite band is called the Hold Steady. Um, and they're, what, they have a song called Positive Jam, which starts by, like, listing off decades and stuff in them. And, and the, the line for the 80s is, the 80s almost killed me, let's not recall them quite so fondly, some Kennedys OD'd while we watched on MTV. Huh. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I think that's the 80s that Laz was living in. We'll see that a lot in the next movies, especially, where he really, really kind of kicks back at that. Here, you definitely see this kind of dread for a new decade and how much he is really sick of the politics of the time. Yeah, right. Yeah, and those politics are very directly emulated in this society that, that you know, that Georgie finds himself in for a good chunk of this movie or, or sort of wandering through. Like, yes. This is a space where, you know, talking, like, about the politics of the 80s, I think you know more than I do, or at least you, you like, I am a bad history brain. History, no, go good in J brain. <laughs> J, J like Pokemon, not like knowing <laughs> politics. I think, I think you kind of give me too much credit, but... You know, we, the, the, the politics of the 80s will come in later because then, yeah. you know, the, eight, the politics of the 80s haven't happened yet. But I think right, there's yeah. a lot, a lot of what's going on here is like, there was a lot of, the end of the 60s, people really thought things were going to start changing. And then the, all the whole 70s happened and it sort of just didn't. Mm-hmm. Or not, yeah. or not in the way people like that, like revolutionary fervor of the late 60s, like felt like it was going to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that feeling of you fucking blew it, guys, it is really in this movie. 
And this idea that, like, like kind of connecting back to the quote at the beginning, like, you had a chance to really start something, and then everybody just kind of shrugged. Yeah. So, um, we should talk about, it, we're, we're like 20 minutes into record, 15 minutes into the recording here, and haven't really, like, talked about the movie at all, which is, which is fine. But, okay. like, I, I, I think if we're talking about that theme, right, of you had the chance to start something and from my perspective, you didn't. And of like the kind of alienation that comes with that, I think it's good to like give a little context about the movie. So I, it's it's not a mole people society, but it is a like semi-subterranean city that Georgie finds himself in in yes. this movie. I, so this is a deep cut. Have you ever seen, you probably haven't, just because I know you and what movies you do and don't gravitate towards. Have you ever seen a Studio Ghibli movie called Pompoco? I haven't. Pompoco is a movie about industrialization and about a group of raccoons that are like in the Japanese style where they can transform and stuff. They have magical powers, which is a very Japanese culture thing. Group of raccoons trying to fight against Japanese expansionism in the 80s or in in the 70s. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, I, I think you might enjoy this movie, but... Kind of Fern Gully-ish? Yeah, what if, what if Fern Gully didn't really have a villain? Um, okay. Yeah, I, I in some ways I would call it a better Fern Gully, actually. Okay. Um, so the, the only reason I bring this movie up is there's a really good image I've always liked. Um, when they're talking about expansionism and, you know, new new housing and neighborhoods building and, and taking away these animals' homes, there's an image of a mountain... And then a giant steam shovel coming in from one side and just scooping out like a third of the mountain from the side. And then another one doing that on the other side. And then both of those sort of curved sides of the mountain just being replaced with like neighborhoods built up into them. That is how the like city in this movie is sort of designed to look. Like something caved out part of a chunk of earth and this city was built into it. Something I really like about it is it's the it's one of the most that these movies ever feel like Mad Max. Not in the, like, car sense, but just in the... This is not a post-apocalyptic world, but this city feels like it sort of could be. Like... This movie very much takes place in the same kind of aesthetic world as the second one. As the sec- Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was thinking, too. And I, I love that. I'm, I'm really happy that he goes back to that. I think that aesthetic is so big that you can always get more out yeah, of it. Yeah, so. and we go back to, like, the weird, like, repeated background events. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this one, it's it's nothing as kind of immediately obvious as the rooftop ballerinas. But, um, no. you, know, you know, the buskers that you can see all around this city mm. and the increasingly ridiculous instruments they have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of them is playing a um, a friggin' bassoon by near the end. It's great. Yeah, no, it's 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 really good, and I I like that yeah. it like calls back to that like familiar <laughs> unfamiliarity from that from that second movie that everybody likes I, so much. I really like the Simpsons gag where those buskers are playing in a house band at like a rest uh, a, a nightclub and the ballerinas are like dancers doing a show with those buskers as musicians yeah it's a good one but yeah i i like the concept of this city i like that it you know like that city from the second one it feels very insular it feels like this is just a place that is kind of a phenomenon by virtue of the place that it is. As as much as it doesn't look as good as something like it would now, the uh, 
the sort of gnarled, gigantic trees that are interspersed with the buildings throughout it as it climbs up the sides are, are really fascinating. Like, it doesn't feel post-apocalyptic, but it does feel maybe the most otherworldly, one of the most otherworldly, certainly, that yeah. any of the settings in these movies ever do. And, and you know, it has character to it because of that. Like, yeah. It's like the city is a character. Like, you know, it, abs- it absolutely is. How the, the, the fact that this city is so singular and isolated really lets kind of really lets the parts of this movie that work work and really lets the commentary the commentary in this movie that works really really works because of how like isolated and weird it is the parts of this movie's commentary that don't work is just kind of georgie monologuing to you which by which i mean laz is monologuing to you because the, the There's so much of it uh, well, uh, you know, I think it could be more. There could be more of it. I think he did show some restraints. You're right. There could always be more of it. Fuck it. Uh, friggin' the fourth one could have been three hours long. There could be more <laughs> of anything anywhere. Thank God it isn't. Um, Kylo Ren at the end of uh, Rise of Skywalker could have gone 30 minutes without speaking before dying instead of 20. Does that happen in that movie? I haven't seen that movie. Oh, spoilers for Rise of Skywalker, yeah. Um, I don't care, because I don't okay. care about Star Wars. I, I am gonna, I am gonna explain, real, yes. <laughs> he has a turn that he takes, that's like supposed to be his big emotional climax, and there are 20 minutes in the movie between then and when he dies tragically, quote unquote, at the end. And in that 20 minutes, he says one word, <laughs> and that word is, Ouch. <laughs> that's, that's kind of incredible. That is real. I, that, 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 I feel like that that's there's another... Uh, we could go off on another, like, Disney rant here about, about Bonus Star episode! Wars. Sure. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to totally derail No, that. no, no. It's fine. I'm just kind of... I'm getting back on the track I was on. Okay? Yeah. Switching. We're moving the train. We're going. The parts of... The, the commentary that works is when it's kind of tight and allegorical and we're focusing on this... Fairly simple story, um, in, in its, like, conception. There's definitely some cool little twists to it that, um, that make it a lot more complex and enjoyable. But when it's really this, like, tight little story in this weird little place, and that's being used to make some statements about sort of the things that Laz feels like his generation didn't do. That that is when this movie's working really well. This movie's working not so well when uh, Georgie becomes Laz and just sort of, sort of starts talking. Just starts preaching about the state of the world and about yeah, you know, about what we've already said a couple times with that opening quote about like this idea that something is inherently being wasted in the world right now. That there is like money being left on the table by the wholeness of society in some way. Yeah, and and, and I think so. <laughs> I, I think that gets even more interesting when you bring in, you know, the sort of line that c- pulls Georgie into the plot of this, which is Margot, who is one of my favorite characters in this entire series. I really like Margot. And Jean is here too. 
Jean is here too. I love that Jean gets to just kind of be here also. Uh, and Jean doesn't do much in this movie, but I do like that he's here. Yeah, I, and I think that, <laughs> you know, you kind of have pre-Jean and post-Jean with these movies. I love that he gets to be, and you know, th these movies have always had reoccurring things, obviously. Like, you know, there's the grief of, of the death in one coming back in three. There's the effect the first three have on four. There's these things that do carry over, but... You don't have a character like Jean until you have a character like Jean. Until now, this is just Georgie's journey through a world. Now it's Georgie and friends. And, and that's great. And I, I think Jean, for what little presence he does have in this, does bring something to that narrative about, you know, grappling with time and age. And, yeah. like, the idea that something is being missed by the generation younger. Because I think, you know, we, we, we talked about this before, but Jean is definitely a character, and he's he's already gone through this a little bit, but he'll continue to. He's a character who feels like he missed something in his own generation. Yeah. And yet here, what I think is fascinating is that he isn't really with Georgie on how much Georgie feels like the people he encounters in uh, in, in Garnet Bluffs feel. Like, like he, he is not really with Georgie on Georgie's million hot takes on the universe and life that the people of Garnet Bluffs are wasting. Yes. Yes. And that all ties in very nicely to Margot. Yes. So, you know, Margot is this character from Georgie's past. It's made very clear from the beginning that they know each other, have something of a history. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't call the tension between them sexual, but I would call it, you know, very close, it, like, in a way that the depth of how close they were is as great as the depth of the distance they have had since they stopped being that close. Yes, there's a lot of, like, feelings of almost here. Yeah, like, oh, this could have been something and maybe almost was something and maybe briefly was something. And then one or both of us fucked up, probably both of us, because that's how human interpersonal relationships work. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. So, like, the, Georgie and Jean come into this city. They're sort of just passing through. And she, and, you know, Georgie sees these posters on the wall for a, a, of the uh, the diner they stop for a cup of coffee in. And, and finds out that his old maybe flame is running some sort of underground fighting ring. <laughs> what I love immediately is that it's... It's both underground in the non-literal sense and in the literal sense. Yeah. Uh, I There's also that nice, uh, that, I don't know if this is done intentionally or this was done for budget reasons, but I do like that it's really obvious that this diner set is probably the diner set from the first one with some decoration changes. Yes, yeah, which they totally didn't have to do. It's been five movies. They could have got another fucking set. Like, <laughs> Laz has so much money at this point. God, I don't... But I, I, I like that they did that. I think that was a very intentional thing, and I like that it's like that. Yes. Yes, it's definitely... It's a little bit distracting on rewatch, but I like it when you don't really notice it and it's an Easter egg. I, 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 I like it when I do notice it, because I, I think... And maybe this is just me trying to make a connection, and really, Laz was just lazy and didn't want to find another set. But, um... I have always kind of thought maybe that's part of what he was trying to do with that bigger theme of, like, gra grappling with the past. Like, uh -huh. th that his own inability to grapple with that and understand what he sees as a waste by some new generation or new decade is kind of mirrored by things that are paralleling things he has seen in other places. Yeah, 
Okay. And that that's not a motif the movie does a lot, so I could be crawling up my own ass to get that point, but like that, I like it though. I like that I like that point. I think that's a strong argument. The underground fighting ring scenes are awesome. I will say it, that. It's awesome. I I love okay. I the the setting here is so fucking cool. Um because like we said it's it's this sort of city built into the side of a mountain like something hollowed out a chunk of this mountain and they're there now. And yeah, and then you have these like caves, these like uh, Laz Patillo as we get into these latter few movies, you kind of saw it with the basement in the last one. He has a really present fascination with subterranean spaces, with yeah. the concept of like the space and the space beneath the space in, you know, both literal and then more abstract ways. He, hey, Jay. Yeah. He's going to the space between spaces. God damn it. <laughs> Fucking, I'm gonna leave. All right, this is your podcast now. I'm done. <laughs> Jay, okay. no, come I, back. We, we I need to talk about how far cool these fights the are. My, I couldn't walk very far because the cable on my headphones only goes so far. Ha. <laughs> and I didn't want to take them off. That'd be a whole hassle. But yeah, no, I like, you get into this underground fighting ring and you see, like, this is, like, again, this is the most kind of sci-fi he gets with the setting is, like, there's... You know, in these tunnels, there's these bits of roots from the trees in the yeah. mountain up above, and they're like weirdly big. They're 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 bigger than they should be, and it's just I, I haven't watched a lot of the darker Jim Henson stuff, like Dark Crystal and that stuff, but it almost feels like that kind of setting to me. Okay, I could see that. You know, like it feels like a, a Muppet wearing a ragged cloak is gonna emerge and hand me a crystal out of out of this fucking cave. Yeah, and you know, Jim Henson is great at setting tone. So if you're comparing mm. something that someone did to something Jim Henson did, I think that's a I think that's a compliment. I think he's one of the, J- Jim Henson is one of the greatest visionaries in all of cinema. I, I legitimately feel that way. All right, the- yeah, no, I'll double down on that one. I I have I have I I would agree with that. The underground fights are awesome. Yes, the underground fights are awesome. The choreography is great. The last two movies didn't really have the level of, like, combat in them. Combat's a weird choice of word. But, like, you know, the level of fights in them that this does. And I I think maybe that was something Laz missed and just kind of wanted to revisit. Just a a point about these fights. So, something in a lot of, like, movie fights that I think is kind of neglected is the sound design of them. Mm Mm-hmm. The sound design of these fights are awesome, and the the other than this movie, the only other one of the only other action movies I've watched where I was like, "Wow, these punches sound like punches!" is honestly uh, uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier, which was yeah, no, absolutely, where like the the fight, the like the the punches feel like they have weight and like they're actually hurting the person who's being struck. I, I was literally thinking of that movie when you started talking about yeah. that, so I am right there with you. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of other movies that do it well, but, like, that's sure. that, that's one where I definitely, I watched it and I was like, okay, this feels notable. This is something I'm taking, I'm, like, taking notice of. And I notice it in this one, too, because it's just, like, you know, it's bare-knuckle boxing. It is people fucking punching each other, and it sounds like that. It's really good. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Any fights in movies or TV or whatever that make you really feel the physicality of the people in them, right? Like, yeah. I mentioned Mad Max once already. The scene in Fury Road where he, a- after the, ju- the, re- the initial giant race into the giant dust cloud where uh, Max wakes up in the sand and emerges from it in that incredible close-up shot, until he pulls the thing out of him, there's just all the sound is just like, 
the sound of his own heartbeat, but like through a muffler. Like it's this weird sensory overload where all he can feel is his own pulse. There is shit like that in this movie. Yeah. In these fights. And I really like that. Like you can, you can feel, you know, the people in these fights kind of like dissociating a little. Yeah. And, and you can feel the fact that all they are aware of is what parts of their bodies are still working and yep. not working. Which is awesome. Also, it's uh, fucking visceral. I love it. Dear listener, we're on episode seven of this podcast. Can you tell that Mad Max Fury Road is one of Jay's favorite movies? Oh yeah, I love it. <laughs> also, can you tell that the podcast blank check that I like a lot is currently doing uh, George Miller? Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I and so he's that. kind of on the brain. But uh, but also, re- like really, I, I've been kind of... I've been thinking about these movies in relation to Mad Max a lot over this whole series just because I think Georgie and Max are very similar in terms of the way they are done within their world. Yeah. But we can... That, I think that's a bigger conversation for a, a, a post-mortem episode for later. But Absolutely. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a thought I've had going forward this whole time, honestly. But I do think it's interesting that um, Georgie stumbles upon Margot in this very kind of violent situation. And then the the camera does this really cool thing where we're sitting on this fight, we're sitting on the, these fights and this violence and you're feeling it and you're feeling it. And then you pull up and away and Margo's above it all. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Like bathed in this really like warm light. And it, it really like, it colors your opinion of her immediately. That is such a good introduction shot. My uh, SO is a, it was a, was a film major. Um, mm. And his professor showed that as a good character establishing shot. That's a good one to show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then we, you just, you, basically the rest of the movie is dealing with Margot. Yeah. And, like, she's kind of an antagonist, kind of a, like, she, she, I guess she's the antagonist, sort of, but really it feels like more that the themes that Laz has problems with are the real antagonist, because at the end, you know, Honestly. she doesn't die, she isn't defeated in this movie, really. She just kind of comes to emotional and physical and more emotional blows with Georgie by the end. And then at the end, Georgie just kind of walks away, as he does yeah. in all these movies. Yeah, and so, like, the thing about this movie is is we're talking about Georgie as a surrogate for Laz and a surrogate for Laz's discomfort with the changing of time. Margot is so fascinating to me because she is meant to be a symbol of blindness to history, I guess, a little. Like, the, so the whole, the whole, you know, what you eventually learn is that, like, these, these fighting, these fighting rings are, like, under the table, government sanctioned by the people running the city. And it's like a thing where initially they were actually underground in terms of how they were treated and like were trying to be cracked down on, but eventually leadership was like, oh, they're good for the economy. And so like there was this thought of like, oh, we have this chance to change these, but what if we didn't? Yeah. And, and but the way it's done, Margot is kind of seen as this like symbol I, I want to know how she got there, by the way. That's another conversation, but um, we never find that out. But she's seen as very much a symbol of, well, let's just move forward and not look back on that. And <laughs> Laz definitely wants us to see that as the bad take. And I think being blind to history is a bad take. But I think I think there's a lot about the way Margot is portrayed in this movie 
as like a, you know, adapting to the world around you and keeping things thriving that are benefiting the people. That is a very good take at the same time. <laughs> I've heard it said, and the the more I watch this as I get older, I kind of agree that this movie's probably aged the worst of yeah. all the movies. Because definitely, you can kind of... Mm. Forgive the slang here. You can see this and you can kind of see the boomer politics. Oh, God, absolutely. <laughs> and not not so much that, you know, it. I think it detracts from the movie as a whole, but you can definitely see it. And, you know, especially that tension where it's like, oh, you guys are like forgetting about tradition. But then you watch it now and you're like, yeah, you know, Margaret, Margaret doesn't have the wrong idea. Like, yeah. there's definitely, you know, there. It, it, she's being taken to an extreme and definitely not do not being her best self here. But definitely when I watch this now, I don't really side with Georgie either. I kind of spend the whole, I kind of, honestly, on my last rewatch of this movie, I watched this like a month or two ago. I just kind of spent the whole time being like, hey, Gene, like, step up and be the medium ground here. Like, yeah, I, I agree with that in a big way. Yeah. And, and that was kind of how I, how I was feeling not to like, though we can, you know, I'm not sure if that's really a constructive road to go down of, you know, talking about alternate universes that might have happened in this um, I, I think it is. Let's go for it. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love doing that. That's like a third of my discourse about film. You know, <laughs> that really. is very fair. And Not really that much, but it is a thing I, I think is interesting to talk about. And, you know, there's a chance that it wasn't taken, and I think it was because this was made in 1980, and he was born in the mid-50s, and, you know, he's grown up through everything he's grown up through. It's now 1980, and this is how he feels. And, you know, there's a reason I think that really resonated with people then, and that maybe doesn't so much resonate with people now. I don't think it's aged as badly as other movies that came out in 1980, but that kind of baggage is definitely there. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I... <laughs> This is the only time you'll hear me do this in a favorable way. Well, not not the only, because we talked about Winter Soldier earlier. But to to pull a Marvel card, um, I wa I rewatched Black Panther not too long ago. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I've seen Black Panther. Not in a little Sorry. while, but I have seen it. So I I I really like Black Panther. I, I liked it more this last time than I did when I first saw it. I, I liked it that time too. But I I think that movie, if you want to sort of draw a comparison. This movie is like if the entire plot of Black Panther happened, except for the part where T'Challa tells his dad and his forefathers that they were wrong. Yeah. You know okay. what I mean? If if T'Challa were the same person at the end of that movie that he is at the start, that would be the same kind of general character progression. Because, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. like, Georgie enters this movie mad and leaves it madder. <laughs> and that's, I think, its biggest weakness, is that Georgie doesn't really go through any change. He just kind of sticks to his guns and is shouting Laz Patillo's points. I mean his points. No, I mean Laz Patillo's points the entire goddamn time. And, and you know, it do that does get into some interesting debate between him and Margot, but... They both leave that movie mad. <laughs> like, that's kind of it. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if you want to con contrast Margot to Killmonger by that logic, I think that's, that's you know, Killmonger in Black Panther is like, hey, we need to mac we need to not only be part of the bigger world we're in, but maximize that and change it all immediately. Mm -hmm. Which is, that is not parallel to how Margot feels, but it is a similar level of taking a degree to a radical degree. But, yeah, but Georgie's just kind of tugging the other way the whole movie. There is no middle ground. 
in in Black Panther, you know, T'Challa becomes the middle ground. There is no middle ground. Like you say, if Jean had stepped in to be that, that would have been one thing, but that does not happen. Anyway, my Black Panther TED Talk is over. And I definitely think that Laz had a moment where he almost wanted Jean to be that, and then he was like, no, I'm going to stick to my guns here. Because we talked about this before, when Laz goes all in, he goes all in. Bringing this back to the personal retrospective thing. Sure. One of the greatest lessons I learned from this movie series are the pros and cons of having a very static main character. Because hmm, okay. these movies are about Georgie, but we don't really see Georgie change that much. We do by the end, but the way that's done in the end is a whole separate conversation. Oh, yes, it is. And the way it's done in the end kind of implies that it was all happening internally this whole time, but we didn't really see it. Yeah. I Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I, I, I think that is maybe the one thing in these movies I feel is the most not earned. Oh. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, are we going to have another argument about the last shot in this movie? Oh, in this movie? No. No, I'm, no I'm, I, I, I'm, the last shot of, of these movie series? Uh, maybe. I, I, I don't hate the last shot. I'm more thinking about the last movie as a whole. Okay, but fair we'll, enough. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But we don't really, like, Georgie learns things and he evolves, but, like, real, like, genuine change? Ooh, that's a little bit harder to quantify, and that's just not there as much. I, I, that's fair, yeah. And, you know, even, like, all right, let's, let's go to a cultural touchstone that... I don't, I don't like that much. Let's go to Harry Potter. Okay. Here we are in Hogwarts. Wow, broomsticks. Whoa, look at that big dragon. Oh, shit, everyone's British and boring. Perfect. But Harry Potter as a character doesn't actually change that much from, book, from you know, books one to book seven. He, like, grows up, but, you know, part of this the character's charm is that he's very stick-to-his-gunsy. Yeah, and, like, I, yeah, he... He, by the end, has a whole grappling with death thing, but the nature of that seems very repurposed in the last book versus how it was in the previous ones. I, 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 I Actually, that boy, I think you just uncovered something there, because I think there's a really interesting parallel between Harry Potter and these movies in that the last movie in this series wants us to feel like more progression's been happening in Georgie than really has. And I think in a lot of ways you can say the exact same thing for Harry Potter and the last one of those books. Yes, that, that, and that is fair. But even then, you know, there is, there is change going on because we're seeing, you know, a 12-year-old turn into an 18-year-old. Does J.K. Rowling do a good job of that? We can talk about that all day. But... The point is, that's what happens, but we don't get to see that with Georgie, because Georgie's a grown-ass man at the beginning of these movies, and he's a grown-ass man by the end of them. But, so there isn't a lot of change to this character, and on the one hand, I think that's very effective, because the world Georgie is in is so batshit bananas sometimes, that it's like, okay, but here's our touchstone. Our touchstone is just sort of this guy going, um, okay, and powering on through it. Yeah. And when that works, that works. And the downside is that, you know, we have endings like this one where you just kind of leave it angry and wishing Laz Patillo had monologued at you less. Yep, you sure do. T t talking about that retrospective nature, I'm, I'm, as you're talking about that, I'm sitting here and thinking about why I like it more now than I did then. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, like, 
when, when I was, <clears throat> you know, when I was a younger viewer, I thought the fights were really cool. Like we've talked about watching the, the making of stuff. The set design shit is incredible. Oh my but god! I, I yes. Think, like watching them put some of that stuff together is so involved and beautiful. But I, I think. I'm going into these now looking at a lot of different things. You know, you and I obviously are talking a lot about Laz Patillo, the guy, as we're, we're talking about these. And, like, I, w whenever I'm into a director I really like, I think about all of their works in terms of what they, you know, who they are behind it. I think that's come out in a lot of the things I've talked about loving over the course of this show. And, like, th this fails in terms of exploring Georgie's own politics, by which we mean Las Patillo's politics, in any more meaningful way than that he has them. Yes. Right? But at the same time, I think it's an interesting... Like, we were talking about interesting and worthwhile failure a couple movies ago, right? We were. From, personally, for my money, this is so much more fascinating in the ways that it fails. And I I really like this movie for the ways that it fails because you can see in Georgie and Margot, in you know the, the, the way that the way that Laz's changing perspective on his own world is churning and fighting inside of him through this whole movie. It's, you know, it's also in when when Georgie and Margot have their physical fight at the end, when, you know, when, when the crowd is not even there, it, when it is just them in this fucking empty cavern. It, it, like, there's so much... I, I feel like I'm watching a man grapple with himself. Yes. In, in a way in a way that um, that Diagnosis Aquamarine also does and why that one's my favorite, this one I also really appreciate for how it does, portrays that grappling. And there are layers to this movie, and the layers that aren't Laz monologuing to you are pretty brilliant. Mm. And, okay, to go back to Margot for a minute. Sure. I appreciate how striking and well-rounded Margot is and this kind of symbol of power and so, so I'm not sure I think there is a difference between somebody being bad at writing women and somebody just not writing a lot of them mm, yeah absolutely because you can just you know you could just have a story that sort of just doesn't have a lot of women in it and sure that's fine and I think, I think this sort of, this portrayal definitely kind of leans me more in the direction of Laz just wasn't writing women as opposed to being bad at writing them. Yeah, I, I think I'd probably agree with that. Um, and you know, we don't know, we don't really know about that because, uh, it's not like he did much other than these movies. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, of the... Of the 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 women in the, I don't know that there's been women in some total most of these movies so far, but not but not all of them. And even yeah. there have been. It's it's someone dying to further the plot. It's someone grieving over that death. It's a bad romance, and it's Margot. Um, Other than Laura, I, I think most of those are okay. Yeah, I I yeah. I, I like I like this and I like I like Margot and I like Isabella. Um, I can Georgie's Georgie's sister is fine. She doesn't really Jessica. Doesn't really, yeah, yeah. Je Jessica's fine. I think she's not in enough of the movie for me to get a great sense of who she is before she dies. Yeah, but I appreciate Margot and I appreciate how Margot functions in the movie and I appreciate how sort of people's reactions to this movie really do sort of speak to the times. 
Yeah. And and that's okay. It's okay that people's opinions of a movie, like different generations, view different movies differently. That's good. That's great. That should be celebrated. I think uh, one of the one of my favorite little like twisty things that 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 has happened in like movie culture. So when like the, your Star Warses and your Aliens came out, uh, the critics were like, "This isn't real cinema." But <laughs> right. everybody who was consuming it was like, "This is awesome." But then they turn around and they're like, okay, so this is the real cinema now. Right. And then, you know, you get younger generations who, you know, they, they watch that. And they're like, yeah, that's pretty okay. And they get really into, like, Pixar. Or, mm. to, a, to a lesser extent, Marvel movies. Well, I, I, think, I think Pixar and animation in general is a really good example. Yeah, because, and, the, you know, and, they're like, and they're like, this is awesome. But then the, those same people who, were, who like fought for the genre movies to be considered real cinema are like, that's not real cinema. Yeah, you have Martin Scorsese bashing the Marvel movies, the MCU. Oh, I, that quote is taken very out of context. I, I, will de- I will defend that quote in that he's not necessarily saying they're bad. He's saying that they're like amusement park rides. They're a product. And he's right. Made to appeal to the broadest audience possible, which honestly, I agree with. But... Yeah. I I think some of them see our Black Panther conversation earlier. I think some of them do great things beyond that, but 85% of them do not. Absolutely. But imagine how much further Black Panther could have gone if there wasn't a council of men in suits behind the director saying, okay, but at the end of the day, we need to sell tickets. I think that one in particular is one of the least bound by that ones, but I hear what you're saying. I think uh, Spider-Man Homecoming has a giant problem with that, and I really like that movie, but I, I yeah. I can, I have to kind of stop talking about the MCU. I, I've, I've missed many, many movies, and I'm kind of not into it, but... Okay, uh, no, well, listen, that's fine. I am more interested in analyzing the ones I've seen than ever seeing another one again in my life. Very fair, but... Uh, I think they're coming up so much so often because that's another, like, giant, big, long string of movies that... Yeah. Were very culturally important at the time. Do we have any last thoughts about this as we're kind of winding down? I feel like we've been kind of bouncing through them a little bit. I mean, so I, I think at the beginning of this episode, I, I said it might be in my bottom half of how I would rank these movies. I think I was lying. Um, as we've been talking about this, I'm remembering things I really appreciate about these movies. And I think it might be like at a solid number four for me. I Because, you know, like we well, said, there's still, a lot that's of stuff. that's still 50% out of eight. Yeah, right. I, I'm saying it's, it's in the top four, not the bottom four. I, I, I still think, you know, it fails in in Laz. You know, I, I still think Laz using Georgie as a mouthpiece is not boring, but, you know, uninteresting. Is like, Laz hasn't come to a conclusion on this shit by the end of the movie. And the movie, I think, kind of fails at helping him. Like, if you want to talk about pieces of media that are, you know, a way for a director or an author mm-hmm. to work through a thing... Uh, like, like my unfinished 130-page draft of a novel that I'll probably never complete. Um, <laughs> like, there are there are things that act as therapy. Okay. Through the act of making them. Shia LaBeouf's and newest I, movie was that. I, I what what movie is that? Oh God. Um, let me just confirm the title because I don't want to get it wrong. Honey Boy. Oh, I've heard that's good, yeah. No, it's apparently, like, incredible, but it's, like, also one of those movies that's, a li- from what I understand, kind of uncomfortable to watch, because it is very much Shia LaBeouf sort of eviscerating himself and his childhood in front of everybody, mm. and he wrote it, at- he said that he wrote it as a kind of, like, 
a kind of self therapy and if you sure. if you read interviews with him about it i don't think he really knows if he's glad that he did it because I, there was one interview where like the the person interviewing him was like so like this is really going to like speak to and help a lot of people and he goes i don't really want to help people i didn't don't really know if this helped me but yeah mm. i made it here take it god see that that's so fascinating so like fuck it i'll i'll talk about this for a minute so so you know i have been working on a, a, a novel called Ice Fishers I since do. we finished college. I was I was um, one of the first people to read the draft. You were, and you're welcome to read more of what is written of it if you want, because I think there's sections of it that are quite good. I, I don't think I'll... I, I don't know if I will ever finish that. And I have recently kind of become okay with that. And the reason for that is that, you know, I very much was writing that as a form of therapy. I was working through some really bad depression and disassociation when I started writing it, and it is very much about that and a product of that. Mm -hmm. But, like, the more I look at it and the more I look at what my plan for the rest of it was, I kind of like what you were just saying with Shia LaBeouf, I don't think it would help anyone who is going through that. I don't think it would... I, I think it did help me to write all that I wrote about it, but also just the passage of time that happened while I was writing it also helped me. And the reason that I have a very difficult time continuing to write it now is because I'm not the person I was when I started, and I feel like I'm so far removed from that person that I don't know if I can return to it in the mindset I would need to be in, and I don't know if I would want to be. Yeah. Now, I, and I think, I think that, you know, that's the thing that can happen when you take too long making a thing that is for that purpose. But um, I, I think that this movie happened to Laz for the opposite reason. I think he wrote yeah. this one too fast. Yes, no, that that's exactly what I was going to get at. Yes, I, I think he absolutely gets at this too fast. Um, and we'll talk about the length of time it takes him to make his movies as we get into these last couple, because that changes a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think this is him like trying to force a piece of art to help solve, like, this is, <laughs> it, it's like he told two of his friends to fight each other to settle a bet he has with himself. Or is like, all right, I don't know what I want for dinner, pizza or Chinese food, and then assigns pizza to one of his friends <laughs> and Chinese food to his other friend and tells them to fight until one of them's unconscious. It's... And then he still can't make up his mind at the end about what food he wants. Yeah. I think that's, as much as Laz is gonna hate the 80s, and this is... The, these last three movies are Laz Patillo versus the 80s. Because they were. this was not a good decade for him. As much as I, I think he was watching people around him be really excited about this new decade and just kind of being like, um... You know, we just started a new decade and, uh... I'm kind of <laughs> like, um... Yep, I, I hear that. For, 40 years removed from the one we're talking about, it all comes... It all comes around again. And so... I like this movie. I think the Russian scene is as genius as people make it out to be. Yeah. And it is a fascinating little look into the beginning. Not the beginning. We're at the cusp of something here. And mm -hmm. we'll watch it develop in these last few movies. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think you're right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if we need to say more about that. I don't think videos. we do either. Any final thoughts? I think I think this sort of feels like this feels like the end here. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think I think we have had those final thoughts out. 
Kirsten, where can I find you on the internet? All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kirsten M. Writes, where I just kind of scream nonsense sometimes. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kirsten Me and Writes, uh, where you can find uh, some more organized nonsense. Uh, I write a lot of poetry. I'm sort of working on sonnets right now, and uh, I also talk about books sometimes. Um, hey, Jay, where, they, where hey. can they find you on the internet? Well... Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Extreme Salsing. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at Hi, I'm Jay. I have a little vlog that will be up by the time this episode goes up and will have been for a while, kind of explaining why the channel's been a little bit dead for a while. Got that. Also got uh, the Twitch channel uh, that uh, that I have been doing some stuff on, which is twitch.tv slash extreme salsing. If you aren't aware, uh, the Orange Groves network that we are very happy to be a part of has been doing a lot of really amazing collaboration on Twitch, raising money for Feeding America in this trying time. And, and, and we are trying to have like at least a, f- a couple streams going up per week of different people doing different things. It's been a great time for a good cause. And that is the greatest type of great time you can have, I think. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. And yeah, uh, everybody, keep yourselves safe and sane. Uh, yep. Take care of your family and your community. And uh, just, like, clenched fists, we're going to get through this. We are all going to get through this. And that's, you know, yeah, that's that's the letter of the law. It's the word of the day. We're going to get through this. It's more than one word, but it's the word of the day. All right. Um, all right. Uh, so join us next week for the Purgatory Bureaucrat. Uh, which just, man, rolls off the tongue. I said that like it was one word, no problem. Yeah. And, uh, until then, uh, stay safe, be well, and join a boxing match underground. Bye! And I'm Evan. And our podcast is It's All Been Done, a Bare Naked Ladies podcast. Hey, what's that podcast about, Ev? So, do you know of a band called Bare Naked Ladies? One week. Yeah, yeah, that's one of them. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah, I know yeah, of them. Do you ever want to learn more about them? Or... Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, well, then this is the podcast for you because we teach you nothing with various guests. Yeah, like uh, like Matt Besser. Holy shit. Climbed in a second story window and partied in this house where we barely didn't know at all the people that was crazy holy fuck mike mitchell why well, I, I don't know how how like how much you guys really do love bare naked ladies justin mcelroy grab your tongue grab your tongue and i want you to say Our born tongue. on a pirate ship Bum on the pilot you were born on a pile of shit and many more so check it out but also if you don't like bare naked ladies we talk about them probably like a third of the time so uh, yes That's every Tuesday, wherever fine podcasts are sold. We could make a board game about it.